Uh, our first reading, uh, or the last reading for the today, is actually coming from Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. But you might want to keep your finger there or mark the page because we're going to come back to uh, the readings uh, in just a few minutes. But for now, let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him and saying, Lord, help me. He answered, It is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Jesus answered her, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. May God bless the reading and hearing of his holy word. Well, i got to be honest with you. When I saw the lectionary readings for today, I wasn't exactly thrilled that this one was included. This is one of those uncomfortable passages, at least it is for me. You probably know what I mean, The passage has Jesus doing or saying something that's antithetical to what you've come to believe about him through the years, through hearing and reading his stories. In times past, I have heard countless times, countless sermons and read stacks of articles about the healing ministries of Jesus and, frankly, had dismissed this one as just another one of them. After all, the person was healed in the end, right? Everything turned out fine, so what's the problem, right? Well, no. When I really read it, listening for what it said to me that I could pass along to you, I realized that this healing story is very different than the others we see along the road of Jesus' ministry. Reading about Jesus' treatment of this woman, which sounds so harsh and so out of character for the Jesus we have come to know in scriptures, I scarcely knew how to proceed. I mean, wow, did I really read that? Did he really say that? I was utterly bewildered, not knowing how to wrap my brain and my heart around it. And then on top of it came the horrific events in Charlottesville last weekend and the continued dialogue about it all over the news for the rest of the week. As Presbyterians, our denomination is going on record in staunch opposition to the venomous speech spewed forth by the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis, the alt-right, and other types of white supremacy groups that day. And personally, I am appalled to see that these organizations even exist, especially in such numbers, all over the United States in the here and now. But from Jesus? Really? What in the world could have brought him to say such a thing? Hmm. 
what in the world? Therein lies the first part of the answer. Hatred is a product of this world, not God's. So I began to search the commentaries, the historical contexts, the admonitions from the early laws and scriptures and other texts for clues to this paradoxical conversation so at odds with the Jesus that we have come to recognize. I found out a few things. In the first place, the cultures in which we reside today and those in which Jesus and his disciples were operating at the time are vastly different. Jesus and his disciples were from one ethnic group, the Jews, commanded by God to be ritually clean and holy. And a quick review of the word holy means set apart. It means existing in the world while not being part of the world. But it does not mean isolated or nationalistic. It does not mean Jews first, then everybody else later. Whenever God had his chosen people relocate, he always cautioned them against intermingling too much, and he was especially careful to discourage, if not outright forbid, intermarriages with the people in the lands into which they were traveling. This was only to prevent the people from straying into foreign religions and worshiping other gods. Additionally, most of the cultures of the the time, most of the ethnic groups, and the Jews were included in this, operated on a patriarchal model. Men made all of the decisions about economic and uh, policy matters, both for their household and by extension for their tribe. Women had their own subservient sets of chores to do. In some Middle Eastern cultures, even today, or at least part of the recent past, Men did not converse with women in public to whom they were not married, unless that woman's husband were present. Additionally, there were prohibitions on certain practices, especially on eating foods that were not prepared in accordance with strict rules. And there were prohibitions against interacting at all with certain groups of supposed non-believers. And the Canaanites from the region around Tyre and Sidon were perhaps chief among those non-believers with whom the Jews were to remain separate. The Jews had taken this whole being set apart thing to its ultimate conclusion, which is out and out hatred. The Jews were (laughs) the chosen people and were therefore superior to the Canaanites, at least in their own estimation, and they, they saw them as is almost subhuman, not worthy of attention. So then, how was Jesus, a Jew, supposed to interact with this person? Not only was she from this most prohibited of groups, she was an unaccompanied woman to whom he was not married. (laughs) And she was bold, too. She had sought him out daring to address him without her husband present, and had the audacity to initiate the conversation. (laughs) Pretty daring for those days. Not only did she speak to him, she shouted. But every time she did, she was ignored or rebuffed, even by our Jesus. 
Now the disciples wanted to shoo her away, as one might do to a stray dog. Nevertheless, she persisted with one plea after another, and one reason after another to persuade him to do as she wanted him to do. And ultimately, he does. Was this a case of her wearing Jesus down with her persistence? Did he just decide to grant her request to shut her up and leave him in peace? Was he testing her faith? Or was he working up his own resolve to do the godly thing in the face of yet another round of criticism from his own people? Hmm. Could his harshness have been directed at her because of her ethnicity and gender? I mean, Jesus wasn't always a mild-mannered savior, much as we like to think of him that way. There are instances recorded in the Bible where he does, in fact, have his anger and rage kindled, and he expresses it. One of the, the famous ones is his going into the temple and turning over the tables of the money changers and the the vendors and reclaiming the temple as the house of God from the den of thieves it had become. We're familiar with that, Jesus. Jesus was a human being, and he had all of the human emotions. But did he also have human prejudice? Now, prejudices are considered to be fairly common. They're individual thoughts held by persons about other persons, and they may involve things like physical characteristics, you know, skin color, hair texture, the shape of the eyes. They may involve self-descriptions or, or groups with which the other person identifies, maybe a religion or an order or perhaps even uh, political parties, professions, sports teams, hobby groups, and other groups associated with various societal roles that we might play. They might involve something so simple as the geographic position of one's birth, their nationality. When a prejudice is involved, the person holding it thinks of him or herself to be superior to the person against whom the prejudice is held. For example, I'm better than they are because I'm smarter I'm richer, I'm thinner, I'm more fit, I'm prettier, the guy, I'm more handsome than they are. As long as the prejudice is kept within the individual's thoughts and never given voice or any sort of action whatsoever, prejudice can remain hidden, internal and invisible. But it's not harmless. It's doing way more harm then you might understand it. It's a veritable cancer on the soul. It is a thorn in the side for which we pray for relief and a cure. When it is subsequently put into a lot of thought and a lot of nourishment and, and dwelt upon inside the mind, it turns into hate. And then when hate is put into action, it becomes discrimination, or even worse, it can become violent, even murderous. At best, it is isolating and it is hurtful. 
And it would certainly sound from Jesus' words and actions in this passage that he might well have picked up these thoughts while growing up as a Jew and expressed them publicly with this woman of a forbidden people. It might seem so, except for this. Matthew places this report immediately following a passage in verses 10 through 20 of chapter 15. This is where I told you you might want to mark your your place. Let's listen to what it says. Then he called the crowd to him and said to them, Listen and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but it is what comes out of the mouth that defiles. Then the disciples approached and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees took offense when they heard what you said? (laughs) No surprise. He answered, Every plant that my father has not planted will be uprooted. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if one blind person guides another, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain this parable to us. Then he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth enters the stomach and goes out into the sewer? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this is what defiles. For out of the heart come evil intentions, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile. Okay. So Jesus and his disciples had been leaving this encounter with the crowds and the perennially unhappy Pharisees after an encounter in which he had had to explain to them once again the concept of uncleanness. He very clearly states that foods eaten do not render a person unclean, Only what comes out of the person through the mouth does that. He states that the mouth utters what the heart contains. The heart might be good and compassionate, but it also might be evil and sinful. It might lead the person into criminal acts such as murder, burglary or robbery, adultery or fornication, and other despicable acts such as lying, and its cousins, slander and libel. Dare I give voice to it? The heart is where the prejudice is fermented into hate. And the mouth is where that hate first finds its expression. Might it not be possible that Jesus tapped into the disciples' prejudices that arose from their misunderstandings of the law's intent and use them for the purpose of demonstrating how uncleanness comes from hate speech and discriminatory treatment of other human beings. Is he tired and needing rest? So he responds to this woman in the same way that the other Jews would respond? Or is this a providentially teachable moment? Even before she gives voice to the thought, does he not recognize that this woman is willing to accept the smallest morsel of mercies, even that which is left over after his own people have had their fill and swept the table crumbs onto the floor? Does he intend all along to grant her request and heal her daughter, or does she actually persuade him? 
Has his humanity overshadowed his divinity at this point? Did this Canaanite woman, not of his faith, and perhaps in, in her approach a little inappropriate, actually teach Jesus something? We have the benefit of a lot of other knowledge about this Jesus. We know from the totality of his ministry that he often heals persons otherwise considered unclean. We know that up until this point, Jesus had limited his attentions to the lost of Israel. But this incident will come to represent a slight change in direction for his ministry. This incident, according to the words of Matthew, is when he opens his ministry to all persons and not simply those of the lost of Israel. In fact, beginning at verse 29, the very next verse after our primary passage this morning, he performs the miracle of feeding the 5,000, certainly an act that benefited all that were present, not just the Jews. And he did it from a few fish and a few loaves of bread. Matthew records that all are fed in this group. The Canaanite woman's words predict that each small morsel of mercy is consumed by a population hungry for it, whether part of the chosen people or not. Her audacity may well have put Jesus on notice that the lost souls of Israel are not the only ones in need of his ministry, not the only ones entitled to a seat at God's table. So if we are to emulate Jesus, how can any of us harbor feelings or opinions that we should view certain humans as less than other humans, as one might be tempted to do, strictly based on those initial words in today's primary passage? How can we allow those opinions to become institutionalized in our organizations and our society as a whole? Actually, that question should be, how did we allow it? Because it's there. But probably of more importance, how can we work with God to replace hate with love and invite everyone to the table? First and foremost, we need to pray long and hard to change our own hearts and eliminate the prejudice that resides there. We must no longer allow these types of thought to take root and grow. If we truly believe in the triune God, we must sincerely try to emulate the behavior and nature of his Son. We must call on the Holy Spirit to guide and support us in the efforts, but we must make the effort. If we are to have meaningful dialogues with persons of other cultures, it follows that we must learn the facts about these cultures instead of believing the biased, hateful views of those who hate them. If we expect others to assimilate to our society, it follows they will need our help. But our help is deficient if we have not become at least passingly familiar with their culture. Why should someone come and try to learn English, which is the most difficult language in the world probably, maybe second to some of the Asian languages? Why should they learn it if we won't make any kind of effort to learn theirs? 
We need to figuratively walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Because it's only when all persons have roughly the same abilities and capabilities that everyone can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and work hard on that leveled playing field we've heard so much about. We help by not assuming that persons who grew up near us, perhaps even attending the same schools we did, have had the same experiences and upbringing that we have. Well, you get the point. Basically, we have to consider how we would feel if we were suddenly the dogs in this passage, desperately looking for those discarded crumbs of mercy that others have swept off their tables after they finished their meals. Are we sweeping enough, off enough crumbs for those in our society that are feeding off of them? And by the way, aren't we being a bit presumptuous to think that we are the ones that are entitled to be at God's table and partaking of full portions of God's mercy? Isn't providing sufficient portions to all the loving thing to do? Isn't it the justice we are required to do, the kindness we are commanded to love, and the humble, loving response of gratitude to our God? Isn't it the same love we want for ourselves? If so, then we are under Jesus' orders to give it to our neighbors. And my friends, the great news is that there are more than enough sufficient servings of mercy in God's world for anyone to be forced to subsist off of the small morsels we discard. All glory be to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen.